Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den amerikanske professor i geografi, Matt Huber, som er ansat ved Syracuse University. Han har skrevet en ny bog, som hedder Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet, som på mange måder er et opgør med mange af de sandheder, som vi også har udbredt her igennem langsomme samtaler. Det er et opgør med nogle bestemte antagelser om, hvordan klimakampen skal føres. En af dem er, at det handler om at erkende klimafaren. At det egentlig bare handler om, at modstanderne af den grønne omstilling skal forstå, hvor alvorligt det er. Og så snart de ved det, og forstår det, og kan mærke det, og åbner deres hjerter, som Elisabeth Wathuti tidligere har sagt, så vil det bevæge sig fremad med den grønne omstilling. Nej, siger Matt Huber, det er helt forkert. Der er meget stærke økonomiske interesser, som tjener på produktionen af alt det, der ødelægger vores naturgrundlag. Og hvis vi bare fokuserer på viden og spørgsmålet om udbredelse af viden og erkendelse og følelser og hjerter, så glemmer vi hele magtaspektet i det. Og det kan være en af grundene til, at Miljøbevægelsen har været så sejrende, det er, at den ikke har udfordret de grundlæggende magtforhold, så at sige. En anden pointe hos Matt Huber, det er, at der har været alt for meget fokus på forbrug og alt for lidt fokus på produktion. Og med det så mener han, at der har været uendelig meget snak om, hvorvidt vi selv flyver eller lader være med at flyve. Hvorvidt vi selv spiser kød eller hvorvidt vi spiser erstatninger. Vores daglige forbrug, hvor meget affald vi hver især producerer. Og på den måde er klimabevægelsen, ifølge Matt Huber, domineret af det, han kalder the professional managerial class. Den veluddannede klasse, det som Richard Freud engang kaldt for den kreative klasse, den er domineret af liberale akademikere, som er uddannet for universiteterne og stemmer til venstre og gerne vil have en bedre verden, men også gerne vil have det systemet, som, som har privilegeret dem, at det bliver opretholdt. Den klasses monopol på at definere klimakampen, og det forhold, at meget af klimakampen er defineret og udgået fra universiteterne, har ifølge Matt Huber ført til, at man har gjort arbejderklassen til sin modstander. Ikke fordi man har sagt, at vi er imod arbejderklassen, men fordi man har formuleret det som kamp, som arbejderklassen ikke vinder noget ved. Så Matt Huber står for mange måder for et opgør med klimakampen, som vi kender den, og som den er blevet defineret også her i Danmark. Og han foreslår i stedet for en total kamp, hvor det både er kampen mod de økonomisk magtfulde, mod de absolute overklasser i vores samfund og for en bæredygtig planet på samtid. Samtalen med Matt Huber er en optagelse fra Københavns Universitet. Han var inviteret af studentorganisationen Suveræn. Her er i hvert fald min samtale med Matt Huber fra Københavns Universitet. Well, thank you so much for coming and thank you for the book. I think for at least three reasons it's a very important book. For me personally, Class war and climate change, they're the big failures of my life. I was thinking recently that in one and a half years, I'll be 50. What are the biggest failures? And I said, class struggle and climate change. Those are the failures. I like to see them combined in one. So this is what, what it's about the rest of my life. But the second reason is that there is a shift in focus that will be very enlightening to many environmentalists in your book. Very briefly, it's from consumption to production. And we have a lot of focus on consumption, what we consume, how we consume carbon output, carbon prices, and you focus on production and ownership. And I think that's just tremendously important that we get there. And then third reason that there are a lot of liberal 
climate change positions that are dominant here and that we must be highly critical of. The degrowth movement is, to a very large extent, a movement of very privileged people. I mean, it's easy to be against growth if you have plenty for yourself. So for these three reasons, the two, the two last are the most important for you, not, not in my life. I think it's just a very important book, and it's so great to have you here, Matt. Thank you. I would want to ask you first, uh, because the, the, the subtitle of the book is Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. And I think me and the people I work with, and now my kids as well, every time people in America say socialism, they're like, yes, socialism. <laughs> we love the slogan. And we say, oh, they broke the taboo. Now we can talk, speak of socialism again. But then, you know, when we hear Bernie Sanders talking about socialism, what it really entails, it's like, this is the welfare state of 50 years ago. <laughs> you know, the word sounds radical, but the content of what you often refer to as, as socialism, to us sound maybe more like the society we actually know. Well, I mean, as, as a socialist, I think <laughs> like our, our long-term goal <laughs> is, is to really abolish an economy that's run undemocratically by a small minority of society for profit. And so that's the goal to democratize economic production and to start to create an economy that is collectively controlled uh, on the basis of human and I would add ecological need. And so that's the long term goal. Right. Um, we have to admit that in the United States, not only socialist politics, but left politics and um, labor working class politics has gone through a period of several decades of being systematically crushed, <laughs> systematically um, disempowered. So, uh, and, you know, we've gone through this sort of right-wing, neoliberal, free market type of regime since around 1980. And I think um, Bernie Sanders was uh, an attempt to try to kind of dig ourselves out of this extremely right-wing uh, free market society with a you know, calling a socialist politics that very much, much more akin to a kind of social democratic uh, New Deal type welfare state. Um, but that, I think, sort of really sounded radical <laughs> to, a, to a U.S. population that had um, really become accustomed to the just the very idea of, of a state that is, is actively doing things on behalf of the population is just completely discredited and, and, uh, and seen as completely off the table. So, but the thing, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders did not need to claim the mantle of socialism, but what is very clear is he, he became a political person through, uh, through joining socialist organizations and being part of a socialist movement. And, and, and that's kind of, you know, he built, uh, he was part of a socialist party at times. And then he, you know, he was in the socialist movement and he became the mayor. He won the mayor race in Burlington. So, I think uh, if you know Bernie, he's he sticks to his guns, and I think he's just like I'm a socialist. I've always been a socialist, but he was able to articulate it in a way. You know, if he'd come out and said we're gonna we're gonna you know uh, seize the means of production and expropriate the capitalist, he might not have gone as far as he did. He he came out with a pretty standard social democratic kind of pushback on the neoliberal kind of hegemony at the time, and I think. That was pretty smart, given the political conditions. And I think it's also interesting for us here in, in, in Scandinavia, because we have a long history of a very theoretical socialism that doesn't change anything in the real world. You know, 
very, very elaborate ideas about capitalism that doesn't appeal to anybody who's not in the university. And I think there is in the way that you're talking about socialism now in the intellectual level in America, there's something very healthy about saying to yourself that socialism, we have a long-term goal, but it must deliver material benefits for the working class all along the way. And I also think that there's kind of a connection between, you know, people that are really radical, like Bashkar Sunkara, people like that, 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 that have radical visions, but they're also very close to the Democratic Party. And, and uh, could, could you speak a little about this connection between the ideas of socialism and, and, and how you want to deliver material benefits? So you're, you're correct that particularly in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, socialist politics was sort of quarantined in very small sectarian types of organizations that um, had a lot of infighting and a lot of splitting and, and typical things. And, and I think um, what Bernie Sanders did is sort of articulate a, a, a kind of socialist politics that actually had mass appeal. And it got, it got socialist activists and um, start to think about what mass politics is, a politics that actually resonates with, reaches huge masses through popular demands that people can understand in their everyday life. And so something that's very simple, which sounds barbaric to uh, Danish audiences, is just calling for Medicare for all, making sure everyone has free health care and doesn't go bankrupt because they get sick, which unfortunately happens with great regularity <laughs> in our barbaric country. And so having a just a simple sort of demands, po popular demands that improve the material conditions of the large uh, working class was Bernie's approach. And it he, he found that, that just being simple, focusing on these popular demands can be popular. And he's still, to this day, one of the more popular politicians. So I think it really woke up socialists to start thinking about what's the difference between um, kind of liberal approaches, which seek to kind of influence powerful people and lobby the, the state to get stuff done. And there's this pamphlet that differentiates in liberalism, but written by Peter Camejo, a socialist. And then ultra-leftism, ultra-leftism being like who can be the most radical, who's doing the more radical actions, and who can, can kind of claim the most highly sort of maximalist moral sort of goal of, of full communism by, you know, 2030. Like that ultra-leftist tendency uh, was really rampant in the American socialist movement. And then Kameho articulates the third option, which he calls mass action and mass politics. And I think... Uh, in the United States, we had the Democratic Socialists of America balloon from 5,000 members to almost 100,000 members. And people finally started thinking about how can we build a politics that really reaches, as Lenin said, where <laughs> the masses are. And, and Lenin said very clearly, like, you know, socialist politics can't be where thousands are. It has to be where millions are. So we really need to reach millions of people with, with very simple demands that resonate in their lives. And I think finally people were starting to think in those terms. What was your own way to socialism? <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, I'm an academic and I'm in a, a field which is, sounds strange called Marxist geography. <laughs> and if you, if you ever heard of a, a scholar named David Harvey, he, you know, he's a pathbreaking figure who carved out a way of thinking about space and geography through Marxist political economy. But as uh, in the early 2000s, what we did as Marxist geographers is we 
read our David Harvey, we read Marx's Capital, we had capital reading groups, and we developed an understanding of capitalism as a bad system. And we developed in similar to kind of like the upsurge in 1999, the anti-globalization globalization protest, we developed a kind of anti-capitalist politics. But in Marxist geography, there was not a lot of talk of well, what do we want instead of capitalism? <laughs> what, you know, what is our alternative? And certainly the idea of socialism was just in those, and when I was in grad school in the early 2000s, it was just seen as this old discredited thing that no one really talks about. So for me, um, it really was 2015 where you had a figure like Bernie who was claiming socialism and actually challenging the corporate democratic establishment for the presidency. <laughs> And then that made me start, uh, as a, a Marxist of, of, of over a decade, start to be like, well, maybe I should start thinking about socialism. <laughs> and so um, I, 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 that kind of got me much more involved in you know, joining a, an organization like Democratic Socialists of America, trying to think through what a socialist politics for climate would look like. And, and how it differs from more liberal and ultra leftist types of approaches. And so that's it, it's been a it's been, you know, an exciting eight years now that we've been in this moment. So I think David Harvey wrote this book and I think he's also translating today. It's called A Brief History of Neoliberalism, right? Exactly. It's small. It's 120 pages. So you can read it in a couple of hours and, and you'll be you'll, you'll be very nice. It's, it's, it's a great little book. Then you then you come to climate change and and I, I think here in Europe and I'm sure it's the same in America. You write about it in the book as well that that you have this divide between unions and environmentalists mm -hmm. and you have a, a discourse on climate change that's very much shaped by a liberal class yeah. and adapted to a liberal worldview and it's highly prevalent in academic circles and it has absolutely no appeal to the unions and absolutely no appeal to to the working classes and and you see that very very often that if you want to introduce climate policies then how can we convince the workers or and, and they're the immediate antagonists of, of it and they mobilize very fast against it and the right is very good at yeah. mobilizing them against it how do you see this divide between environmentalists and unions and the working class so there's a lot of different ways I can yeah. tackle this. Um, the first thing I'd say is, um, I think personally, unfortunately, there's been a more liberal kind of professional class approach to climate policy that has focused on basically economic theories of how we're going to solve the climate crisis. And the, the general theory was essentially we have what's called a market failure and the, the cost of carbon emissions is not reflected in the prices of uh, fossil fuel commodities. So the answer to that is to internalize the cost of climate change into the prices and, as they say, get getting the prices right. So this sort of very free market neoliberal approach to, cl to climate policy uh, really coalesced around the, the model of carbon pricing and carbon uh, markets and carbon taxes as the smart <laughs> way to attract to basically uh, you know, implement these policies and then allow markets and the private sector to kind of seamlessly invest and in, in save the world <laughs> through the the, the non-coercive force of markets, right? Um, and so you had a lot of liberal, uh, you know, in our country, the Democratic Party and other 
um, center-left parties around the world advocating for these policies. And the right is able to come around and say, these people want to implement policies that's going to raise the cost of energy for you. They're going to tax your way of life. They're going to make your life cost more. And it was very easy for the right to kind of mobilize, mobilize a, a sort of populist backlash and reaction to, um, for instance, Obama tried to pass something called a cap and trade, yeah. really complicated technocratic climate policy, and the right called it cap and tax. They, they <laughs> mobilized the Tea Party to kind of uh, have rallies and, and, and mobilize mass opposition. And, and, and so um, it was very easy for the right to kind of act like they're the champions of the working class because they're opposing this thing that seems clearly to want to raise the cost of a key element of people's everyday lives, which is energy. And so that was a big failure. But when we're getting into the, the unions, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of different styles of climate activism and a lot of different ways in which we should think about the types of political coalitions and movements that could solve climate change. But I think, as we know, you know, Naomi Klein wrote uh, a very influential climate book in 2014 called This Changes Everything. And in that book, she kind of says the sort of cutting edge and, and the, 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 the vanguard, if you will, of the climate movement are what she called this movement of blockadia, where you had a ton of people who are blocking, you know, doing heroic work of blocking pipelines, blocking coal mines, doing direct action tactics to try to, you know, shut down, disrupt the fossil fuel machine that's really killing the planet. And again, this activism is crucial and it's going to play an important role. But you can very easily see why that activism butts heads with unions yeah. <laughs> who are, for better or worse, invested in the production of pipelines and other fossil fuel-based infrastructures and then th see their jobs and livelihoods as tied to those things. So then they clash with the activists. And, and a lot of anti-pipeline activists are going to have very bad experiences with the unions being against them and right on the barricades, you know, right? And so um, that's, that's going to create some tension for sure. But I think what we have realized also is that the climate, solving climate change is not just about blocking stuff. Yeah. It, we have to actually build uh, an entirely new energy system. We have to, in the United States, we, we basically have to build fundamental green infrastructure, like something I've, I've enjoyed here in Denmark. It's been like public transit. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and we need, uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement around building green public housing that could benefit, um, you know, a housing crisis where people are really can't afford housing in, in, in our country. So, th so this kind of politics of building and not just blocking, but building a new new infrastructure, building a new energy system, and, and how that aligns with this kind of more positive vision of a Green New Deal that's kind of going to kind of create uh, a new way to tackle climate change and inequality by offering material benefits to the masses of people. That politics of building has direct and easy appeal to unions, particularly the ones in what we call the building trades, right? It's going to be not hard to win them over to an idea that we need to build more housing, we need to retrofit schools, we need to build massive transmission lines and public transit. So I think we have to sort of be strategic about how we can win unions over, because what I try to argue in the book is that, like it or not, this is a crisis of our industrial production system 
which has for over 200 years grown to rely on this fuel, fossil fuel. And so to, to actually solve it, we have to do a kind of what the Labour Party in Britain called for, like a, a, a next industrial, a green industrial revolution. And industrial revolution means a lot of industrial development and, and the unions are the workers that have the knowledge and, and, and expertise of how those industrial systems work, of how to, when the power goes out, how to get it back on, when, uh, when power plants are running, how to keep them smooth. These are the workers that are right at the core of the industrial system we need to transform. So I think we have to, if, particularly if we're socialist, we have to take, take very seriously that the workers in the belly of the beast of the system are gonna have to play a really central role in this politics. So there's gonna be some antagonisms, no, no doubt about it. I mean, we can't just say we're gonna keep coal-fired plants open because unions like them, right? But we have to sort of try to seek for what kind of politics can win the unions over, what kind of politics can enroll these workers with their skills and their knowledge into a politics of building a new future, which is what essentially we need to do. Isn't it fair to say that there is some progress in the, if you look at the, the, the cap and trade system, that was pretty much the Obama approach, this neoliberal thing that we can do it. He always talked about doing things smartly. Yeah. If only intelligent people were running the world and the others would stay quiet, we would yeah. get everything done. And, you know, we can see a lot of faults in, in Biden and a lot of shortcomings, but it does seem to me that if you look at his agenda and especially what he wanted in the first place before he got blocked and blocked and blocked <laughs> by the right wing blockadia, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it seems to me that there is another approach. There is a way of saying, well, this is about creating a new industry in America. This is about creating new blue collar jobs and maybe we'll lose some jobs in the oil industry hopefully also in the fracking sector, but we will create a, a new industrial revolution. Isn't there some kind of progress there? Yeah, um, and I I kind of feel vindicated a little. You know, I was writing anti-carbon tax pieces in 2016, and I got I wrote these pieces in Jacobin, and I got attacked. <laughs> That's a socialist magazine, if you don't know, in the United States. I wrote this piece in Jacobin and got attacked in Jacobin <laughs> by other socialists who thought carbon pricing was the way to go. But now, essentially, there's become a new consensus that, particularly in the wake of the Yellow Vests revolt and, and, and other sort of just obvious sense that there's going to be no popular support for those types of carbon pricing. There's just been a move away from carbon pricing, carbon markets, and an idea that, you know, um, a sort of coalition around what we call industrial policy, yeah. which is again, thankfully, like finally reviving the idea that there is something called the public sector that can actually intervene in the economy and direct it in ways that we need to do for a society and for a public good. So that's like incredibly encouraging. Unfortunately, given the undemocratic nature of our system and the fact that uh, a guy from West Virginia can just basically <laughs> block uh, everything we want to do. We we had a very kind of, I would call it marginal victory with the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed a couple months ago. It was celebrated here. As celebrated. A, yes. Um, and to me, this was like in the lowest form of industrial policy because ultimately it's, it's, it's a package of tax credits. Oh, yeah. And it's trying to attract... Um, Again, trying to basically put out some carrots and incentives for um, 
uh, market actors to freely choose in the market the right car like low carbon uh, technologies. So both consumers uh, to choose things like electric vehicles and heat pumps for their home, but also investors to have these tax credits to then invest in green energy and so forth. But there is very little in the way of uh, policy that's really rooted in you know more commitment to coordinated planning of a build out of a new energy system. There's not really a lot of room for direct public investment in the old new deal kind of sense of actually, we're gonna just use public sector capacity to build out new energy systems. So we still have a long way to go, but, it, but I do think at least um, the goal now has moved from carbon pricing and markets toward industrial policy. It seems to me that's, that this kind of industrial policy also entails the risk of publicly financing a new green industrial complex, that you get a new, yeah. you know, that what started as socialism. Yeah. Uh, green New Deal is probably the best socialist vision for America in the 21st century, yeah. isn't it? So that's a great link. Um, unfortunately, the, when you use tax credits to to be the cornerstone of your policy, what you do is you attract a whole set of, of, of actors who want to take advantage of tax credits and they're called rich people. <laughs> they're called <laughs> very wealthy people who need to shelter their wealth from the tax man, you know? So tax credit policy has led to essentially a whole army of investors. They're called tax equity investors who, um, you know, Obama passed a lot of these renewable energy tax credits. And basically the, There's some of the richest people in in the whole economy, like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's outfit, who who are looking to find shield their wealth from taxes so they get ownership stakes in a renewable energy development, and then and then they gain from that, right? Um, and Warren Buffett in 2014 famously said that the only reason to build a windmill is to get the tax credit. Otherwise, it wouldn't be built. And so the, the goal of building these things has become to shelter wealth from taxes as opposed to like solving climate change. And so uh, the new tax credits have some changes. They can be, the, the investors don't need to take ownership stakes. So it can be all sorts of rich people that can take advantage of them. And, uh, and also they have something called direct pay for public utilities. And that's the thing most of us are really excited about because there might be a way for not just private sector and private owners to take advantage of these, but public utilities like the Tennessee Valley Authority and other publicly owned uh, municipal utilities can kind of take advantage of these tax credits. But by and large, it's, it's, it's ultimately um, creating, like you said, a, a green capitalist regime that is really owned by some of the richest Wall Street aligned people. And so that is concerning. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, I think that's actually going back to your previous question, a pitch we need to make to the unions that you can actually look at the renewable energy industry, at least in the United States. And you, what you see is quite an anti-union industry that's growing up. It's owned by Warren Buffett. <laughs> it's owned by other Wall Street investors who are hostile to unions. And, and if the unions that are already in the electricity sector aren't thinking strategically about how they can insert themselves in this transition, they can see themselves be eviscerated by this kind of green renewable capitalism owned by Wall Street. So the unions have to really fight to uh, make sure when Biden says that the, the climate change is about good union jobs, they actually put some legal mechanisms <laughs> to ensure that, right? Because 
because you can say it, but you actually have to have policies that 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 ensure it. And the Inflation Reduction Act has no, it has what are called prevailing wage provisions, but it does not have a lot of provisions that guarantee the work to build these new energy systems will be union work. So the unions really have to start thinking much more long-term and strategic about how to put themselves in this situation to fight against that kind of green industrial capitalist regime. Do, do you feel that in, in your title, that is why it's so promising and such a, a great read, is that you combine, not only do you combine socialism and the fight against climate change, you say they can only go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, the, the question against that is, at times you feel, do you feel that you must choose between the two approaches? You, you know, you have people like Bill McKibben that, that you're highly critical of at, at points in the book, but who's also, in my view, a great a great figure in, in American environmentalists, he would say that, well, politics is slow, finance is fast. Mm-hmm. Climate change is happening so fast that we cannot just wait for the long negotiations of politics. We must try to direct finance against it. Yeah. So fuck it, we're going to enrich some really rich people, but we need to act fast. Yeah. This is the This is the way to act fast in our societies. We want another society, definitely. And and he wants another society as well. So he would say, well, we must choose to just accelerate finance, green investment. Okay, BlackRock, from the socialist point of view, they're the enemy. But right now, they can get things done that we can't get done through Congress. And then on the other hand, you, there's the socialist you're saying, well, we don't want BlackRock deciding anything. We, we don't want Larry Fink deciding anything. We don't want him to... This to me is is an almost existential dilemma because of the time horizon defining climate change. How do you see this dilemma? I think we we should just take a look at the last four decades of what you could call financialized capitalism, where the power in the political economy has been in the hands of financiers and people that work on Wall Street. And what you've seen in that economy is a systematic um, enrichment of, of of financial actors who are moving money around. In the economy in all sorts of creative ways, but systematically um, preventing uh, real productive investment in real things like uh, you know an energy grid yeah. <laughs> or uh, a public transit system. So you've seen for decades that basically, like if you look at indicators of investment, both private and public, it's just gone down. It's just anemic. We don't live in an economy that really facilitates real productive material investment. So my pit, my pitch is that that's what the the climate change uh, crisis is about. We need to revive some sort of commitment to real material investment, and it's really the Larry Finks of the world and the financial world who 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 are preventing that by siphoning off so much value for their own pockets and sort of moving money through derivatives markets and all this kind of stuff or these um, um, uh, asset manager capitalist types of things. And you can just look, uh, you know, BlackRock has been famously a champion of what's called ESG investing and yes. environment, social and governance investing. And they have been, said very lofty things about how they're going to kind of try to create a set of, of sanctions and, 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 and types of portfolio manipulations that will really guide investment toward more green, climate friendly types of investing. But all it took was in the United States, Texas and uh, some I think Oklahoma, some other fossil fuel-based states tried to politically organize a boycott of BlackRock 
and other uh, of these what they accused <laughs> of woke investor capitalists. Uh-huh. You know, they're watching a lot of Tucker Carlson and stuff like that. So they, <laughs> they, and they, they actually were going to pass this boycott that really cut off the flow of money to BlackRock from Texas. And BlackRock figured out very quickly that this would be a disaster for them. And so they backed off. Um, so I, I'm really, <laughs> really just like uh, skeptical that, that we can kind of channel financial markets. And I know Bill McKibben's been on this with the divestment movement for really um, uh, about over a decade now. And, and I don't think this finance world is going gonna, is gonna to catalyze real material investment. It's just not the place you need to be looking. Det var så min samtale med Matt Huber, og den sluttede noget pludseligt, og det skal jeg være den første til at beklage. Og grunden til, at den sluttede så pludseligt, det er simpelthen, at forbindelsen røg herfra. Og hvis jeg hurtigt lige skal resumere, hvad vi talte om herefter, så kan man sige, at vi talte om, hvorvidt socialismen i USA, den socialisme, som Bernie Sanders har ført frem, som Elizabeth Warren har været med til at skubbe frem, og som er udviklet omkring Jacobin, magasinet og som nye kandidater som især Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez men også Rashida Tlaib og mange andre har været med til at udbrede hvordan den står i USA i dag om den står og falder med Bernie Sanders og til det svarer Matt Huber at venstrefløjen er blevet opbygget at den har faktisk en bevægelse og den har nogle organer og den har nogle politikere men det er stadigvæk en mindre bevægelse det er stadigvæk en mindre magtfaktor og der er ikke nogen der står til at kunne tage over og blive den nye samlende skikkelse efter Bernie Sanders. Spørgsmålet er, om Bernie Sanders næste gang vil være for gammel til at stille op som præsident for USA. Det tror jeg nok, vi, vi begge to var, var enige om. Han talte også om, hvorfor elsektoren er helt afgørende. Hvorfor det, som han kalder for revolutionen, må gå igennem en organisering af elarbejderne og fagbevægelsen. Og det handler om at komme til at kontrollere hele produktionen af el, hvis man overtager kontrollen med elsektoren i USA, så mener han, at derfra vil den grønne bevægelse brede sig, og derfra vil herredømmet over samfundets energikilder komme på fælles hænder. Det er en lidt længere tanke, og som han udfolder meget i sin bog Climate Changes Class War, Building Socialism on a Warmer Planet, som udkom fra Verso Books tidligere på året. Og så vil jeg sige, at i næste uge, der har vi en ordinær langsom samtale med den italienske filosof Donatella Di Cesare. Og hun har skrevet en bog, som angriber kapitalismen en helt anden sted fra, kan vi roligt sige. Hun ser nemlig coronapandemien og samfundets svar på det som en reaktion fra en kapitalisme, der lider af åndenød. Spørgsmålet er så om det, vi lærte af corona, det er, at alt kan laves om i vores samfund. Vi kan faktisk stoppe det hele. Eller om læreren er det modsatte. Man kan kun stoppe det hele i vores samfund, hvis man ender med at vende tilbage til normaliteten. Man kan godt bremse alting, hvis man lover folk, at det her er en pause. Og så genopfører vi samfundet præcis, som det var før, lige bagefter. Det forekommer i hvert fald mig, at det var sådan, det endte. I næste uge finder vi ud af, hvordan Donatella de tjæser det, hun ser på det. Og så vil jeg sige, at der er mange, der er så venlige at skrive til mig med forslag til nogen, som de gerne vil have, jeg taler med her i langsomme samtaler. Og bliv endelig ved med det. Min e-mail er runesnabla.information.dk Nogle af dem synes jeg er spændende, nogle af dem synes jeg ikke er så spændende, men det er altid spændende at få nye bud. Held og lykke derude. Vi tales ved i næste uge. Hej.